My name is Michael Shaw. And I'm Michelle Welcher. And this is The Climate Crisis. I think the thing that gets to me the most is that there is no plan. There is no plan in place. So yes, they aren't doing anything about trying to stop climate change from getting worse by cutting emissions and closing the coal industry and so on. They're not doing anything to turn us into the superpower of clean energy that we should be. They're not even preparing for the bad stuff that is already hitting the country and that is and that more and worse is already locked in. It's baked in because of the emissions that we already have. There is no plan. We are a country in a state of emergency and there is no plan. I mean, why, when the smoke is breaking on Brisbane or Melbourne or Sydney, why is it left to the luck of who gets to Bunnings first to see which of our children are going to suffer from smoke inhalation? Why? Because there is no plan. Why are we in this situation of having inadequate resources to respond to the megafires? Because there is no plan. There is no plan for dealing with the encroaching of the oceans and the waters on our cities. There is no plan for dealing with conditions of a drying continent that are not going to get better anytime soon. There is no plan. There is just a tissue of nonsense. Well, if that doesn't make you want to get up out of your chair and go protest, nothing will. That was the voice of David Ritter, who we heard speaking at Woodford at the start of this year. Yeah, David Ritter is the Chief Executive Officer of Greenpeace Australia and Pacific. And he's written a book, his most recent, he's written a few books, but his most recent book, The Cold Truth, The Fight to Stop Adani, Defeat the Big Polluters and Reclaim Our Democracy. He's very passionate about creating changes, but also for his two daughters, which he talked about a lot in his speech, which is quite beautiful. And look, a lot of our viewpoints been around acceptance of what's happening, mm-hmm. but certainly within acceptance, as Catherine Ingham was saying last week, each according to their own nature, some will respond in full action. And mm-hmm. um, David Ritter is one of our leaders in that regard, one of our country's leaders in that regard. Yeah, and certainly Greenpeace as an organisation has been as well. Mm. But we're also aware too, the big thing on everyone's mind is the coronavirus. Exactly. And some people are saying, well, I guess the jury's out where this collapse that everyone's been talking about financial and otherwise brought on by the climate crisis. Mm. Some people are saying this is the beginning of it and some okay. people are saying this is just preparation for it, but we don't know at this point what it exactly is, do we? Yeah. Well, one of the things that stays in my mind is what Michael Mann said is there's no new normal. So we just come out of the back of the fires and it's like when that rain comes, we're kind of stabilised and now we've got the coronavirus. And this is part of the picture that was painted by people like Jem Bendel and uh, Jamal about what we're moving towards, a series of these kind of events exactly. as things start to come undone. Yes. Playing for you a talk that David Ritter gave at Woodford back at the start of the year and yeah, the, so the very inspirational voice of David Ritter. He's a, he was a, he's a, he's beautiful, a beautiful, man, intelligent, yeah. passionate man. A bit later we'll, do an, we'll play our interview with him as well. Here's David Ritter. There is, I think, a sense that the smoke that has enveloped the country, the spring of fire, 
has changed Australia in a really fundamental way. And that change has not been just through the physical change, which of course is there, or the social change with people being dislocated from place, or the changes in nature where there has been damage to species, to ecosystems. But something has happened, I think, to the way in which we perceive our government in Australia. And it, it, was, it was bothering me that it was, you know, sometimes something is just on the edge of your memory, a sort of sense that, that something reminds you of something else. And I realised after a, after a while of the spring of fire crisis that what it was reminding me of was 1986. And it was reminding me of 1986, not because of anything that happened in Australia, because thankfully the events in question were a long way away. But 1986 was when the Chernobyl accident happened. And I'm looking around and I'm thinking probably most of us can remember Chernobyl. And the footage that was, I guess, haunted me as a kid, as a child of the Cold War, as a child who grew up playing, playing games where you were digging nuclear shelters out the back of the primary school with your schoolmates, the image that haunted me in 1986 was the smoke plume coming out of the reactor at Chernobyl and the fear that went with the cloud of radiation. And I just remember, I can viscerally remember going to sleep and thinking, I'm so glad, I'm so lucky living in Australia, it is such a precious thing, that that terrifying, terrible thing is so far away. But we know what Chernobyl did to the Soviet Union. It exposed the gulf between what was being said by the government and the system of lies that was being promulgated through the Soviet Union. The systematic spread of untruths, whether it was, we have produced this much grain this month, but in fact we have produced this much. These people were political agitators. Well, no, of course they weren't. It was just the vicious, murderous behaviour of a totalitarian state. What Chernobyl did is it fractured that. It painted in the largest possible way the gap between the lies being told by the regime about the state of the world and what was actually happening. Because you couldn't cover up a disaster on the scale of Chernobyl. And that is, I think the same kind of experience that we're having with the fires. We have had in this country years and years of denial of various kinds. Now we had the Abbott kind of denial, which was a sort of rather more theatrical form of denial. Remember when he said coal was good for humanity and then went off to munch an onion? And he's of course said many even slightly madder things since he became Prime Minister, or sorry, since he stopped being in Parliament on speaking tours of Europe. We've seen a, we saw a kind of denial with Malcolm Turnbull that was not about him ever not believing in climate change, but was about him defending non-solutions that were only going to uh, lock in our high emissions 
trajectory. So it's a practical kind of denial. If you say, yes, a problem is real, but then you do nothing about it or, in fact, make it worse. And then there's the kind of denial that I guess we've seen with uh, our current Prime Minister, and I'll come back to uh, him in a moment. But what, what all of these different species of denial have rather naively imagined is that there weren't going to be any real-world consequences. So if, you, if we think about it, right, what is all this climate denial of the various kinds, whether it's outright it's not happening or whether it's at the level of, yes, it is happening, but I'm not going to do anything about it, it's all premised on the assumption that you can kind of get away with it. And maybe they think, maybe they think, well, they can get away with it because if it's just, just the melting Arctic or just happening to countries overseas or just the loss of 50% of the coral cover on the Great Barrier Reef or just the loss of 90% of the kelp forest in the Southern Ocean or just, 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 you can kind of get away with it. But all of a sudden, you have Australia's largest population centre shrouded in smoke and children afraid. And all of a sudden you have fires on a scale that has been unprecedented, despite what everyone's favourite mad uncle or auntie might say at the Christmas dinner table, absolutely unprecedented. And all of a sudden denial gets very, very hard indeed and exposes the gap between what everybody knows or at least the majority of Australians, by all opinion polling, recognise to be so, and the, what the politicians are either saying or the way in which they are behaving. So a crisis of legitimacy, if you like, a gap has opened up between what the government says and does and what people know to be true. And we know that gap's there, as I say, through opinion polling, we know it's there because when we have uniformed emergency service workers and local government mayors coming out saying there is a gap, and when comedians are saying what everybody knows, what is, if you like, the common sense in the community, but it's not being admitted or it's being kind of denied by political leaders, then we know there is that gap. So this is the extraordinary position we are now in, in Australia, I think we are in a kind of Chernobyl moment. And above all, what that Chernobyl moment showed in the Soviet Union is it not only showed the gap between what the government was saying and what was true, but it showed that the Soviet government was prepared to jeopardise the lives of its citizens to avoid any risk of losing power. Our government has been doing that. I am very fortunate to work with a fantastic um, group of people at Greenpeace and I'll talk a little bit more about that good fortune and what, what Greenpeace sort of is and what it does in a little while but um, one of those terrific people at Greenpeace uh, a few weeks ago did a little piece of research and what she wanted to do was just to check how many times had Australia's political leaders been warned by experts that a failure to reduce emissions would contribute to the creation of catastrophic fire conditions. 
And it turns out that since the election of Tony Abbott, and don't worry, there were more under the uh, Gillard, Rudd and other governments going back, but let's keep it neat. Let's say, starting with the election of Tony Abbott, 18 separate top-level scientific warnings that a failure to reduce emissions would contribute to catastrophic fire conditions. And that's putting to one side all the other risks that are associated with global warming that we know about. So let's just step back from the usual kind of argy-bargy about climate action for a moment and just think about what that means. It means that very plainly we have political leaders in Australia who have ignored warnings of the likelihood of direct harm to the lives and livelihoods of the Australian people. They have simply ignored those warnings. Now, what would happen to you if you were a doctor and you ignored warnings like that? Of threats to the lives of your patients? What if you were a lawyer or an engineer? In society in general, we don't actually allow people to just ignore warnings like that. They are held to account. But one of the features of our system of government is that that is not so easy. So this is where we've come to. This is where we've landed, a moment that I think that I'm putting to you that we can characterise as a kind of Chernobyl moment in Australia. Yeah, he paints a really strong picture. <sighs> Doesn't he? He really does. I mean, really calling the governments to account for their lack of response and responsibility mm. uh, for what they know, what they've been warned Absolutely. about by professionals, by scientists for a long time. And comparing it, as others have mm. as well, to the Chernobyl mm. uh, incident in Russia, mm. where he, he, we said but the powers that be were prepared to jeopardise the lives of their mm. citizens to avoid losing power. It's just so accurate. Yeah, yeah. And chilling, you know, in that And sense. chilling. Mm. And also, as we said at the start of the program, so different in their approach to COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. But it's all safety first on an individual level, you yeah. know, but not looking at putting the climate first, because if we don't have a safe environment and biosphere to live in, then there's going to be no safety. As some have suggested, COVID-19 hits the rich and poor at the same time. I suggested that. You suggested that. <laughs> That's why they're concerned. It doesn't discriminate. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds Don't you know we're talking about a revolution sounds while they're standing in the welfare lines Crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation Wasting time in the unemployment lines Sitting around waiting for a promotion Don't you know, talking about a revolution sounds Poor people gonna rise up We've seen begrudging denial and then most recently, or sorry, begrudging acknowledgement and then we've seen most recently this, well yes I do acknowledge it, I've always acknowledged it 
So there's this sort of try, effort to try and sort of gaslight the country. I've, I've always acknowledged it, I've always said that. No. But it's not going to affect anything that we do. We're not, the Prime Minister says, going to change our policies around climate change at all. So, we find ourselves in a country that in some ways is starting to feel unrecognisable. Starting to feel unrecognisable physically. It's starting to smell different. There were no Christmas beetles in Sydney this year. I didn't see one. Jeff Sparrow wrote a nice piece in The Guardian lamenting that fact. We're seeing the changes in our window boxes, in our gardens, in our paddocks, in our creeks and on our beaches. And we feel the changes inside us even if we don't necessarily know that what's going on. Because the rhythms of our, in my case, in the case of many of us here, the rhythms of our childhoods are either vanished or vanishing before us. Of the various terrifying things I've heard scientists uh, say over the years, there's a single phrase. I can't even remember who said it to me. It might have been Leslie Hughes. But it was just this. Equilibrium no longer pertains. Ouch. <laughs> Equilibrium no longer pertains. So this is our great test as a country, as communities, as individuals, as a species. It is our great test. And I have to share that all the deep-seated frustration I feel at our political leaders, I use the term loosely, all of that deep-seated frustration, I do not feel about the people of Australia. And I do not feel it because of all that you see. Now you will hear, we all hear, we all hear these stories of, oh, Australians, they're so this, they're so that. Think about what happened in the middle of this year when we had a climate action denying government returned ahead of a work avoidant opposition that Yes, they acknowledged the truth of climate change and they had a few good things in there like a just transitions authority, but still they were putting the hard work well in the distance and, you know, you can't be both for coal and against it at the same time. That night, um, as the results uh, started to come in, um, I went through a sort of sense of feeling a bit nauseous and I went and had a bit of a look at the stars which were happily visible that night, or at least I remember them as being visible. And you just you think in those moments about, well, what's the responsibility here? And it turns out I wasn't alone in thinking that. Because in the weeks and months that followed, we have seen extraordinary things across Australia extraordinary things and a kind of determination and leadership that bodes very well for putting our country on a different kind of trajectory. The Climate Emergency Declaration is an Australian invention, first in the world, Derebin Council, Victoria. 
and we should be as proud of that as we are as other Australian contributions to global democratic thinking, like the secret ballot. Climate emergency declarations, first one in the world in Australia, in Derribin. That was before the federal election, but since the federal election, we have seen now more than 80 jurisdictions around Australia declare climate emergency, show leadership and declare climate emergency. And yes, of course, if it just stops with words, that is very limited. Where did those climate emergency declarations come from? They came from people organising, people stepping up, leaders who never knew they were leaders, kids who just want to be kids, people who want to be doing other things, stepping up and saying, no, it is a climate emergency and regardless of what happens in Canberra, we are going to take action. We have seen, of course, the continuing growth of the school strikes movement uh, and then that extraordinary outpouring of people onto the streets uh, in unprecedented numbers in Australia for a climate march. Vast community action. We have seen on, that, on those days businesses, businesses calling for employees to join a strike. Now that sort of thing doesn't happen that often, but there they were, the, the coalition of businesses called anything but business as usual. We are not being authentically and sincerely and honestly represented by the leaders who take office in Canberra. We are better as a country than this. So a vast majority of Australians believes in a different way. It is our prosperity, it is our well-being, it is all that is best about us as a set of peoples as a people, as a country. It is in our economic best interest to head for 700% renewables and not to keep digging up coal out of the ground. I mean, you hear these people who want to keep digging up coal out of the ground and you think to yourselves, were you the people who wanted to keep a chamber pot under your beds rather than install a flushing toilet? We can just do a lot better than coal. It is a dirty, filthy, murderous technology that is killing people every day. 293 people a year in New South Wales alone from air pollution from coal-fired power stations. We have the worst pollution controls on coal-fired, coal-burning power stations than worse than the US, worse than the EU, worse than China. That is our Australia, but this is not the Australia we have to be. So, what are we going to do about this? Collectively moving forward, we as a country do not need to settle for the second best that is there in Canberra and the nonsense that is being propounded by that regime. We go through and we go round and we do this by continuing to sweep through the institutions, local councils, universities, businesses, galleries, festivals, deciding to buy 100% clean energy to change the economics of the system and to change the public story. We don't do this to stop the bad. 
like it's a bit the clue in the name. I don't work for a movement called Stop the Bad. I work for a movement called Greenpeace. And it comes from that idea that there is something magnificent and beautiful to be built. A nature that is flourishing for all time. A nature that is rebounding from the damage that we are doing to it. A reef that may one day flourish again, given half a chance. Christmas beetles that may one day return, given half a chance. And people who are able to flourish with time and space. This is what we're in it for. This is what's to play for. It's all on the table. So let's make 2020 really count. Let's make it that year when we did things together, collectively, with kindness and generosity to each other that shifted the dial, that moved businesses to commit to clean energy, 100% clean energy by 2025, that moved galleries and museums to cancel their sponsorships with fossil fuel, that changed the country, that started to build the place that we know we can be, that we want to be, that is the best of where we come from and that is the best of where we can still yet imagine ourselves being. Let's make that our 2020. Imagine sacred sites were left to be Imagine if true activists controlled TV Imagine Captain Watson had the final say And imagine if industry just had to obey fortunate we got to interview him after his talk and he gave us a lot of his time so we're going to play some selected bits from that interview. I'm with David Ritter, uh, leader of Greenpeace Australia in the Pacific. Certainly when we're talking about democracy one of the things you spoke about there's this emergency and there's no plan. Is Greenpeace also talking about adaptation as well as mitigation? Mm. Well I think we need to be adapting in the sense that we have to start building resilience into our societies. And as Naomi Klein likes to say, the world is going to get hotter, but it doesn't necessarily need to get meaner. And we need to make a set of decisions as a country to be the best of ourselves, because there is no business plan for, a, for three degrees of temperature rise. 
we, we need a national resilience framework. There is no there is no question about that. But the, the point is it's not either or. We need to as decarbonise as quickly as we practically can. And I know the war analogy is overused, and as someone working from Greenpeace, I don't feel altogether comfortable with war analogies, but we need to mobilise at the scale of you know dealing with a war or a plague. But we need to do that at the same time as we are starting to build resilience into our system because we warming is already locked in. I mean, even at where we are now, catastrophic fires, half of the coral cover on the Great Barrier Reef, the state of the Murray-Darling, where, again, it, the root cause, I mean, there are other causes in there as well, but the root cause of climate change, we need to start building resilience. What strikes me as you say that is... What happens if the Australian political system doesn't respond? The system seems to be changing in the other direction, becoming more right-wing in my view. Well, I mean, even the right-wing thing is interesting because true conservatives would actually want to do a bit of conserving. Um, (laughs) Great great historical change is non-linear and it doesn't work on the kinds of timetables that we expect and is inherently unpredictable. No-one predicted the collapse of apartheid in the way in which it collapsed and the way in which it worked. No-one predicted the collapse of the, Ber- the, the coming down of the Berlin Wall when it happened in the way that it happened. Virtually no economists foresaw the GFC happening ex- outside those who worked within a certain um, left tradition and one or two others. Um, we don't predict these things very well. One of the books I have on my desk, and I do have on my desk The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace-Wells because I want to know the truth and I want to look the truth square in the face. But I also have on my, de- my desk uh, Rebecca Solnit's Hope in the Dark. And one of the things Solnit talks about in that beautiful, wonderful book is that you never know. You never go home and you never assume social change is done, but you never know. You never know what causes and effects are going to come from doing as best as you can to send the world in the right direction. And we just have to be able to tolerate that radical uncertainty of our times. So we can. We have resilience enough as people and as a species to tolerate that radical uncertainty. We know that whatever happens on the other side of the climate crisis, society is not going to look the same. But we can do our best with kindness and with justice and with love and creativity and imagination and we can do our best. And if we do that, then whatever the results, ultimately we know we have thrown everything into it. We know we have thrown everything into it. And if one day, a thousand years hence, there is a great barrier reef and if one day, a thousand years hence, the tall trees rise and if one day, a thousand years hence, we have nature in whatever form that it is but flourishing again, then we will have done our job. And if the world looks something different again, we will have done our best. That's beautifully put, David. One of the things that frustrates me about the question around climate change that we're in is that it also seems to ignore the ecological change that's going on at this massive rate. It's almost the, the, the silent conversation that's going on but not being talked about. So there's no doubt that we are experiencing this steep, steep decline both in numbers of creatures and in species diversity. And it is incredibly sad to live through and with. But 
nature also has an extraordinary ability to rebound. And we, the first of any generation perhaps of humanity, have the opportunity to be the nurturers and the stewards of that rebounding of nature. So while I, I weep, I weep for what is lost, and I think many of us do, and it is so, it is so confronting, we still have within our ability the capacity to bring our earth back to a state of health and flourishing that would be the most astonishing and beautiful thing for those of us who are alive now to deliver. So, again, let us just set about that task. Your article in The Guardian, which is a great article. I really enjoyed it. You said the Australian government has made threats of political repression against climate activists. Being a climate activist, they've got a bit alarmed. Yeah. Look, unfortunately, there's now quite a long history of Australian governments cracking down in a really quite vicious and undemocratic way on what is healthy democratic dissent in a country with a very proud tradition of healthy democratic dissent, including civil disobedience, driving social change, whether it's rights for women or um, the, the abolition of white Australia or land rights or our contribution to ending apartheid or any number of other things, a very proud part of Australia's democratic and political tradition. When he came out to Australia in 2016, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Human Rights, Michael Forst, said he was, and I'm quoting, astonished at the level of attacks on environmental defenders in Australia, that he was astonished. And he went through then a number of not just repressive measures, but just the political vilification of people who, are, who just love nature and who are trying to protect the country that we love so dearly. It's interesting talking about ways that we can express our dissent about what's happening and that being shut down and in another way is through climate justice. I'm sure you're probably aware in the Netherlands the group agenda sued the government for lack of climate action and they actually won. So do you think this will ever happen in Australia? Well, we have have different legal systems, but I think... Let's talk for a moment in terms of hypotheticals or just, just to pose the question. Should it be permissible under our system of law and government for a, a government to pursue a course of action that is consistent, according to all of the best available evidence, with our collapse as a nation and a civilization? <laughs> Who thinks so? <laughs> it's just extraordinary, isn't it? I am just gobsmacked by what's going on. I cannot believe it. I just wonder, you know, where we find our way in this as citizens. Well, we find, I mean, we find every way. So we, we vote, we run, we join, we protest, we petition, we climb, we educate, we demonstrate, but we do it at, at, with our greatest ambition. I think the question for, for all of us now is what is the the biggest thing we can do so we're not just thinking as an individual and saying you know I'll buy my keep cup or whatever but we are instead thinking what is the largest influence I can have how can I work with others to have the 
biggest possible influence because time is so desperately short to to make uh, to make a difference. Yeah. It is, is the most basic obligation of government to keep safe the citizens of the polity, and through its failure on climate change, our federal government and our state governments are not keeping our citizens safe because of their failure. So there is something deeply wrong at the heart of our system if that is permitted, if that is lawful. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for your time. Sleep while I'll be